turn to James chapter 4. I think the kids are headed to the back. It's so good to be with family. I missed the last two Sundays uh, preaching in another church, uh, Alt Chapel. We pray for them uh, each uh, regularly and uh, help continue to fill the pulpit. And then last Sunday we got to celebrate Jennifer's birthday together as a family. And missing two Sundays feels like missing two months uh, when you're not with the people you love. And so I'm really thankful uh, to be able to be back all together and seeing some faces we haven't seen in a few months. And so it's really cool uh, just being here uh, together. And we're going to start like we do every Sunday before we get into the Word. We're going to pray. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So let's supplicate. Let's, let's offer these prayers of supplication for some specific needs together. Thank you for being our Father for being close to us always, for filling us with your joy, your strength, your very spirit. Father, thank you for this special time of gathering. Help us to never take this time for granted, but to cherish and to value and to lean into to what we get to do each, each Lord's Day when we gather like this. Help us to remember to pray for our brothers and sisters around the, the globe who can't do this openly and in freedom but have to hide and sneak around and do it in really small groups. Help us to never squander this freedom that you've given us. You've blessed us and so many others in our nation and in our region. We ask you to breathe life into the mission of these faithful gospel-centered churches in our area, like Alts Chapel and Fair Park Baptist and North Hills and Washtenaw Presbyterian and Covenant Presbyterian and, and others, the well. Help us to see the gathering and the mission as important. May we value these gifts proportionately and faithfully as we seek to have your body that is representing you and loves your word and, and is empowered by your spirit to go and be your people. Father, we pray you'd bless the parents at the crossing and across the surrounding parishes in their efforts to disciple their kids. As school begins and schedules change, uh, God, give us the discipline of time and energy to, to lean in and to love our kids and take care of our kids and disciple them through the busyness of life. Help us continue to see our businessmen and women in the workplace deployed as those who are sent. We thank you for ministries like 2414 and Marketplace Ministries and, and we pray your blessings as they continue to prepare believers to be intentional in the marketplace with the gospel. We pray for unity among our local churches as you, as you raise up teams of church planters that can be sent out from among these churches. Help us to push into relationships we have with networks that we're in, like Soma and Acts 29. We want to see more glory and worship for you through these local and global relationships. We pray you'd gather and send out harvesters to unreached people groups like the Wanchi and the Mandarin people in Indonesia. Continue working on and through house church networks and other workers who were able to stay in China through COVID. And Jesus, plant healthy churches and make disciples among the Aceh and the Baima and the Bonin and the Tangra and Tibetan Jone. God, save the Laz and the Zaza people groups for your glory. Graciously distribute workers to these forgotten people groups. And Father, bless the time in your word this morning. Jesus, help us to see and savor the truth of who you are the reality of who we are and who you are making us to be. And I pray for anyone who's here today who doesn't know Jesus in this way, who doesn't enjoy Jesus, who is not experiencing the joy of their salvation, that today would be the day of their salvation. 
pray especially for Dustin, God, that you would help him to see how much you love him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you are in James 4, I heard an expression years ago as a pastor, from a pastor, uh, hard words make soft people, soft words make hard people. Uh, interestingly, the pastor who said that uh, later disqualified himself from being a pastor and had to resign from the church that he planted because he was known for verbally berating and bullying his staff members and other members of the church. Um, but the expression, the mentality can be used to justify some really hurtful behavior. But the reality is sometimes we do have to say hard things to people we love. And the hope is that they know our love and they will receive that in love because they, they know of that love and they won't feel like we're just browbeating them for our other reasons or our own, our own issues, or our own insecurities. So James has referred to the recipients of this letter as brothers on six occasions so far. He's referred to them as dear brothers on three occasions so far. So it's a bit shocking when we get to chapter 4, verse 4, and he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? Like what in the world has happened or what have we missed maybe that would justify such a change in tone of how he speaks and refers to them? So let's, let's get the context of where verse 4 came from. Going back to chapter uh, 4 verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. At the root of the divisions and conflicts in churches, marriages, all relationships is the disease that infects every single one of us. And that's the disease of selfishness. We desire and we don't have. He says, we covet, we can't obtain, so we fight and we quarrel. As one author put it, the underlying cause of sin and relational conflict is selfish desires and passions that are frustrated and go unsatisfied. And James even makes a connection between this and prayer in verse 3 when he says, you ask, but you don't get because you ask for the wrong reasons. You're, you're just going to foolishly squander what God gives you on selfish pursuits. God has created us to enjoy him and find in him our ultimate source of joy and satisfaction. God has created us and wired us in a way so that the ultimate joy for self isn't to pursue our fleshly selfish desires and find our greatest joy and satisfaction in getting what we want. But the greatest joy for self is to pursue him and find in him our greatest delight and everything we are given just becomes more opportunities to enjoy him. So if our jobs become the source of validation in our life, then I have to have a certain kind of job that makes me feel a certain way about myself. I have to be good at it, successful in order for others to look at me with admiration. It has to be the kind of company that makes me feel good about myself. And if that's where I'm rooting my identity, and so who I am is I have this job for this company and I'm this good at it, then anyone and anything that gets in the way of me having that job and being good at that job is a threat. And it's going to cause conflict and turmoil within me. 
There'll be conflict in my relationships. There'll be sin because I'm being driven by this selfish desire to validate myself in my career. But if I'm pursuing Jesus and I'm fully trusting in him for my validation, then what I do and where I do it isn't as important. The job doesn't become ultimate. I could do a hundred different things. All of them simply become a platform to enjoy Jesus and to share Jesus for him to be seen through me. Because all of them simply become this, this vehicle to do that. He's created, wired me in certain ways with certain skill sets. I could do a lot of different things and do them well. So just all of us are like that. Maybe, maybe we'll be good enough to be recognized. Maybe we won't. But my validation has already been achieved when Jesus made me his own. I know who I am because I'm defined by Jesus more than my job. And the good I do at my job, it's all because of Jesus. So he gets the credit and the glory. And I can share that with others, too, because I know my success isn't just because of me. And so you have one way of living that is full of angst and anxiety and selfish striving and conflict. And you have another way of living that is full of freedom and peace and joy in what is ultimate. And you could walk this paradigm through every single area of your life. Your identity and validation doesn't come from how awesome your marriage is. So we don't have to pretend like our marriage is always awesome. We can be honest about how hard it is to be married and to be healthily married. Your identity and validation doesn't come from how amazing your kids are. They're amazing sometimes. Sometimes they're not. It's not always your fault, right? We take far more credit for the good and we take far more blame for the bad in our little wonderful offspring. Some of you have like really young kids. and They're perfect. They never do anything wrong. Your identity and validation doesn't come from the fact you're married. I've arrived because I've, I have a spouse. And you're somehow deficient if you're not married or less than. It's not true. You're equally an image bearer who can be used by God in his kingdom if you're single or if you're married. It doesn't come from how much money or status you achieve. Those aren't ultimate. How good your fantasy football team does. I have screenshots and videos from me winning our fantasy football league last year. I don't know if I'm going to play this year because I only can go down, right? doesn't matter. Who cares? None of that's ultimate, but we constantly, constantly make these kinds of things ultimate. And we're constantly fighting and at war within ourselves because we're chasing lesser things as ultimate things. And they fail us. And God is saying, chase me. Find your satisfaction and ultimate joy and rest in me. And use all these things I give you as more opportunities to enjoy me, not the things. And the connection to prayer is this. We ask God for something and we don't get it because he knows we're asking for the wrong reasons. We're driven by selfishness and not driven by him and a desire for him. God, give me things to enjoy uh, give me things to enjoy more than I enjoy you. God, give me what I need so I can enjoy that thing more than I enjoy you. This is a, the stunning thing we do. We go to God and we ask for something. Help me have this, God, so that when I get it, I'll turn around and enjoy the thing and find more to satisfaction in what I ask for than I find in you. One author put it like this. James portrays God as our heavenly spouse to whom we are come asking for money to go and pay for a visit to a prostitute or to purchase gifts for a mistress. Which is why we get to verse 4 and James says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. We're cheating on God, our spouse. 
Now, interestingly, the word adulteress is the feminine form of the word, word adulteresses. And this is the term and the expression rooted in the Old Testament where God was routinely referred to as the, the, the husband of his bride, the people of God. And all through the Old Testament, their sins and their idolatry was portrayed as acts of infidelity and unfaithfulness to their groom, to their husband. The entire book of Hosea, for example, is this being acted out. Hosea, like God, the faithful husband, and we, God's people, like the unfaithful wife, Gomer, who continually leaves her faithful husband to pursue other relationships. And Hosea keeps bringing her back, bringing her back. No, you're mine. You're mine. I forgive you. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We have hearts that continually chase other lovers that the God who loves us than the God who loves us so very, very much. And James describes this adulterous pursuit as friendship with the world, which we really need to think about as a church of missional communities that talks all the time about saturating our city and our region with the gospel by intentionally building relationships with people in our city who are, don't, don't know and don't love Jesus and they're far from God. So are we committing this sin of friendship with the world by being in the world and being friends with so many people who aren't part of the church? Well, first, what is meant by world, the, the word translated as world in the New Testament can have a variety of meanings. It can refer to the actual physical earth and natural creation. It could refer to the world of human beings. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But in this case, it's similar to the use of the the word world in Ephesians 2. The world refers to a way of life or belief system that is in rebellion against God. It's the collective system of unbelief in God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, it's God's enemy, the spirit now working in the disobedient, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. First John five nineteen, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. That's not Satan has the whole world globe under his sway. God is sovereign, but he has this world system. God has given him enough leash to control this world system to carry out the plans of the enemy against God's plans all within the sovereignty of God so that's world this world system of rebellion against God so what does friend mean, mean well we know it doesn't mean the same thing as Facebook friend we meet somebody one time and now we're friends on Facebook and we don't even know them but we treat Facebook more like a phone book we just want to have their ability to connect to that person to to reach out to them if they need them or, or want to deepen the relationship. But friend in the Eastern culture, even today, is much more intimate and intense. It would speak of people who share all things in a physical and spiritual unity, people who are of like mind and like heart and like soul about life. And so to be a friend of the world in this language is not speaking of you and I going and seeking to build relationships with people who are far from God in order to love them and share the gospel with them and hopefully see them come alive in Christ, that's not being a friend of the world. Being a friend of the world would be 
I've aligned myself, I've adopted the mindset of the world system that is in rebellion against God. I'm okay with what is not okay with God. In what ways had those people in James he was writing to done that? Well, in chapter 1, he sees the advice to them to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry because the human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Chapter 2, they had given in to the the common mentality of the world to, to be prejudiced for the rich against the poor. Later in chapter 3 and into 4, they were letting their tongue be used to be critical and hurtful of others. And they're expressing envy and selfish ambition by elevating their own selfish desires above serving and sacrificing for others. That's, that's how the, the world lives in rebellion against how God has created us to live. You could go on and on with those examples. One author put it like this, being a friend of the world is accepting the values of the world as preferable to those of God's word. It's embracing the language of the world. The standard of success of the world becomes our standard of success rather than God's word. The world's criteria for determining virtue and value are embraced. The moral vision of what is good and evil is embraced. This is all being a friend of the world. One of the best ways to disciple your kids and help create a Christian apologetic for your kids is is taking all the aspects of culture that they're exposed to, TV, movies, music, books, and discussing with them, like how is this book or music or movie, how is this TV show revealing the mentality of the world that's in opposition to God? Sometimes it's just revealing it. Sometimes it's not just revealing it, but sometimes it's promoting it. So you can talk through that with them, helping them see, like they're saying this way of life is better than God's way of life. Sometimes it would reveal this is, this is a reality of how people who are chasing sin live, but they're not showing the consequences of chasing sin. It's fun. It's good. There's no consequences. You get away with it. So you can come in as a mom or dad and say, no, no, no actually, actually, you're going to wake up the next morning and not feel so great. Sunday morning's coming down. It's going to be sadness and emptiness and sorrow for you if that's how you live and that's what you chase. Or sometimes you'll, you'll get into a movie or a show and it's, there's this brokenness that's revealed that's very common to the, the world system. Sorry. I guess it's working. There's this brokenness that's revealed that's common to the world system and, and there's this longing for a redeemer. Who is the redeemer who needs to come and fix this? We went and saw uh, Bright Star, a play at Strauss Youth Theater this summer LaShawn was in, and I'd never heard of the story. If you don't know the story, you can look it up. But like halfway through the play, it's, just, it's really just well written. I'm like, where's the Redeemer in this? This is the worst play I've ever seen in my life. This is all sorrow. A baby's been thrown from the train to die. This is sad. Like, certainly this is not a kid's play. They're going to fix this, right? Like, I had this angst for a Redeemer. How are they going to solve this problem? And then sometimes redeemers are presented in these things that we enjoy, but they're not good redeemers. So you can talk through that with your kids. This, that's a, a glimpse of redeemer. T- Tony Stark giving his life to save the everyone in the world in Avengers 2 or Avengers 1 or whatever. That, that's an example of redeemer, but there's a better redeemer who's coming that we can long for. I remember when the kids were little reading this book, uh, we had tons of children's books, still do, and some of them old, and, and uh, I grabbed this book uh, that was an old fairy tale about a red hen. I don't even remember what it's called, 
Abigail was like six or seven, and it was all about this hen working and working and working to prove herself. And I was like, Abigail, this is antithetical to the gospel. <laughs> okay, Daddy. But you can do that through even children's books and old fairy tales, Aesop's fables. There's good in there that's evidence of God's common grace, but they're not the gospel. There's something missing. And so constantly drawing out the difference between the world system and God and how he's created life to function. Um, it's not helpful. Some people are tempted to, I'm going to turn this off. This is driving me nuts. <laughs> 